Hey everyone, welcome to Real Indigenous. This is a long one, but it's an important one. This episode, we're going to talk to Sarah Adams Cornell. Sarah is one of the founders of the organization Matriarch Oklahoma, and that is a group that helps Native women reconnect and create a community. And we are thrilled to have her on the show. Uvala Luatak, Uvanga Angela Starts, and welcome to Real Indigenous. OCO in Hawaii, Candace Bird Boney here. The topic of discussion for this podcast will contain sensitive and potentially upsetting material. Please take care of yourself. Please stay safe. And if you find yourself being triggered, please just turn us off and come back whenever you are ready to listen to this important topic. Brianna, we have some guests with us today, including our regular host, Monica, but our special guest, we are honored to have Sarah with us. You want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Halito, Saho Chifawat, Sarah Adams, Choctaw Hoya Sia, So Ishkiat, Tammy Adams, Sapotnia, Dorothy Jefferson. I'm Sarah Adams. I'm a proud Choctaw woman, uh, two spirit person, and I uh, am the first daughter of Tammy Adams and the granddaughter of Dorothy Jefferson. Just so happy to be here, hanging out with you fine folk today. So thanks for having me. Well, we invited you here for a very special reason. Let me just talk a little bit about the genesis of this idea. For me, it's because, you know, there are so many more natives, especially young native women, two-spirit people being involved in the entertainment industry. And as we know, historically, there are a lot of predators in the entertainment industry. And so my idea was to, you know, come on and talk about signs ways we can remedy stuff. And it kind of grew into a bigger conversation among all of us about the MMIW crisis, about domestic violence, and some of the broader topics that affect us post-colonialism. So we're here to talk a little bit about that. And it's complicated, right, Sarah? Maybe you can kind of fill us on all of that. Yeah, I think it's one of those topics that's just MMIW, and for listeners who are not familiar, that stands for uh, Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women, but we also know that applies to all of our relatives, so sometimes you'll hear it use MMIR for relatives, Um, and so it really is, I don't like to call it an epidemic because that's usually something that occurs naturally out in the world, and this is very intentionally man-made. Um, So this is a crisis. This really is a crisis. And it is complicated because there's not one issue we can point to and go, oh, this is a result of domestic violence or because of addiction or because, you know, there's not one thing that has led to this crisis situation. There are so many different wheels that have to be uh, turning to make this happen and to to make it something that is impacting our community as largely as it is, quite honestly. And, and there's lots of information about where this is happening most that I think is very, will be shocking to people that have not, you know, heard that this impacts urban indigenous mothers hardest. And most people think about this happening in remote areas most often, and it certainly does impact those areas. But it's a lot of people who are disconnected from community who don't have those safety nets that find themselves in positions where where all of the gears turn together and make this happen. Yeah, I'm really surprised to hear that. Honestly, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that, you know, as 
you know, colonization happened and we were uh, all of these programs that, you know, sent a lot of our parents or grandparents to boarding schools and then sent them out into urban areas, these government programs for relocation to the city. It really did a number on us. It really took us from being a part of uh, a community that was close, tight knit uh, to places where we don't have a safety net. And when we're talking about, you know, kind of how this happens and how people uh, fall into these situations, it's it, again, it's not one thing. Like it usually happens to uh, people who have a history of trauma uh, when we're talking about sex trafficking or MMIW, because there are people who intentionally take advantage to, to really brainwash people into uh, being, you know, making them think that they're empowering themselves by uh, being in these positions or relationships, separating them from family members, you know, isolation is a big tactic, but we also think about it in a way where we think, oh, it's the stranger that came out and like grabbed somebody and like took them away. And, and, you know, we think about that because we see it in media a lot, right? We see it in the movies, somebody grabs somebody and runs. And that just isn't the case. It's usually somebody they know. It's, likely a partner uh, or an ex-partner. So there's a lot to unpack here because it really usually doesn't happen the way you see it in movies. The first time I heard about missing and, and murdered indigenous women was actually in Mexico. There was this billboard about, and it was showing all these missing women. And I remember looking into it and thinking, oh, there's this horrible serial killer in Mexico that's like, you know, and then you sort of study this and you see, no, this is just women who are working in factories, who are being pulled into a really complex system of cartels. And uh, I think they call them mecleodoras or whatever, the, the factories and things like that. That's causing this. It's not like one person is is killing all these women. And then as Canada went and started having their examination into this issue, which is well before the United States. I don't know, maybe you could fill, fill in a little bit more about this, um, Sarah, but this is the, my understanding of how things kind of unrolled is like in Canada, there was a lot more attention to this. And then the United States, finally, there was, even though missing and murdered Indigenous people, women has been going on, you know, since day one of colonization here. It's only been in the last like maybe 10 years that it's really brought up in the United States or maybe even five years. And of course, then what comes with that is representations in media, whether it's a, a decent documentary covering the topic or um, as we see, you know, movies like Wind River and things like that showing up. And so could you talk a little bit more about if that's your impression of how things sort of rolled out in terms of missing and murdered folks, the mainstream being aware of this issue. Absolutely. You're right. It, it, it was um, the, the movement and the hashtag MMIW really started up with our Northern relatives. Um, and I think it's interesting too, because there was another movement that happened, if you remember called I Don't Know More, which was also based out of Canada and our First Nations relatives really got this momentum moving and it was all feminine led and it kind of felt like it was attached to that movement we started seeing a lot about uh land protection and water protection 
And then it kind of felt like the last end of the MMI or the, I don't know, more movement, we really started seeing more uh, information and more organizing around MMIW. And it, uh, and we owe them a big, you know, a big debt of gratitude because they really were able to get this off and into kind of mainstream media where people were started doing things like you mentioned, started making documentaries, uh, started writing articles. Uh, we started seeing kind of how the media really did not focus on indigenous people who were uh, lost or, or who had been murdered and it could have happened in the exact same spot as somebody who was non-Indigenous and usually a white person who would go missing. And um, we were like, hey, you know, our relative, we had 10 relatives when we were talking about Gabby Petito and things like that happening. They, I think somebody did some research and found that there were like something like eight or 10 Indigenous women who had gone missing in that exact same spot and never a mention. And so I feel like this has been such a great platform to make sure that we're able to really work towards honoring our relatives, trying to find our relatives. And uh, there's been so much momentum around that. And so it gave us this platform really is what is what happened. Um, and now I'm finding that more and more people understand what it is, what it's about, how to, how to be helpful. And then we see things like uh, laws now. We've seen legislation. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here or not, but we've seen legislation come out of Oklahoma uh, to create this uh, liaison between OSBI and the state, who also connects with the federal government, so that all of these holes that we see that, that where um, uh, legis or not legislation, but uh, when we're talking about jurisdictional issues that are a huge problem that make this machine continue, tribal governments as well, everybody argues about whose job it is to go and find our relative. And we know that time is of the essence, right? Like we have to get on it to be able to find our relatives before it turns to a situation where we're just trying to recover a body. Oftentimes, I will say the communities that find, we find us, like we're taking care of us like we always have, right? And so we have these MMIW chapters that have, you know, popped up to really meet the needs of the community where the government has failed us. So that to me is another example of how our communities have always taken care of each other. And we have maybe more chapters in Oklahoma than maybe any other state and they work together. And it's just uh, this incredible thing that has happened as a, a result to try to protect our communities. Yeah, I was thinking about like, there wasn't even a decent list of who was missing, right? And so folks mm -hmm. came forward and just said, I'm just going to start writing this stuff down then and keeping the list. And, you know, a little bit later in the episode, we want to talk about the real life reality of, for example, like the definition of what grooming is, partner violence, and sex trafficking. But we wanted to also sort of talk about the media and how the media is playing a role in disseminating this, sharing this, but also maybe getting things wrong as well. So we had an episode after Taylor Sheridan, who is the director of Wind River, he said in an article that he was sort of implying that Wind River was responsible for 
bringing the MMIW crisis to the masses. He was in a little, in his own way, kind of taking credit for the work that had been done by all of these amazing advocates. He was taking credit for the reauthorization of VAWA. Yeah, he threw the Oh my (laughs) gosh. (laughs) Wow. Yes, yes. The egos, (laughs) right? The egos. And to me, that is a weird thing to want to take credit for, right? Like when you haven't put in the work, I mean, and I'm not saying that like that film didn't do a lot to help, you know, spread the word for sure. But Mm -hmm. it's like, you want to, no friends, no. Yeah, that's that, that two, what is it? Two-edged sword. It brought a lot of awareness to it, but there was, there were so many things. And we talked about it in the episode. There were so many issues in Wind River in telling the full story because it focused on a very small slice of the problem with the man camps and didn't didn't discuss at all what you were just talking about with all of the the colonial aspects that contribute to the rise of these resources being taken away, loss of community and all of this stuff. And so the you know the sheer audacity of him to be just like I mean oh my gosh <laughs> right yeah. like look yeah. at me look at what I did oh and it's gross and especially like when I'm sure all of you know of some people and I've I've I know some of the people who gave congressional testimonies on the floor of Congress to have the reauthorization of VAWA for the tribal jurisdiction provision who met the president who you know had all these things who had to share their stories over and over and over again and they had to be invited to DC to just come and speak just for people to listen and to get to get our those legislators to believe them and so I was just like like several women whose testimony that they had to do the work that they had to do. And this is years of work. We know that this is years and years of work of partnering with, with legislators of uh, working both sides of the aisle. You know, this, this didn't come about because of Taylor Sheridan. The flip side of that is that he did bring a level of awareness to, to the masses about it. Yeah. And one he thing you said, this I think is really important that these people are having, you know, our relatives are having to go and relive trauma, right? Like mm-hmm. real deal yes. trauma. And I wish, wish, wish. So in my advocacy work, I talk a lot about MMIW and a lot of times, like, I just wish there was another way for us to convey it without having to lay our trauma back out there, like a way to convey it, to just be like, I know storytelling is important. I know it is impactful, but it's like, do we really have to relive traumas in order to make people want to help or try to change this? Like, I wish there was another way to do it. Maybe one of you all have like a brilliant answer to like, we should be doing it this way. I'm all ears because it feels like, like abuse, honestly, to have to have to relive it it. it. and then you're and then it's like we're in a constant state of trauma healing as we're trying to make the change happen and it's a wonder why you know so many of us burn out in this work because it is so exhausting and emotionally exhausting and to try to stay on our games to be able to and the families who are asked to you know come speak again it just, uh, that's a whole other topic. We could like yeah. spend a whole, yeah. 
<laughs> and, well, and, then, and we haven't even talked about the trend on TikTok where, you know, of course, everybody knows the red hand across the mouth. All of these native creatives were doing it. And all of a sudden, all of the non-natives started picking it up because it looked cool. And so they were kind of co-opting that. And, you know, it's just like, oh, well, we want them to pick up the banner, but, oh, they're picking up the banner. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about how media creates this idea of the perfect victim. So, or the model victim, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about that movie Enough with Jennifer Lopez so she's, <laughs> she gets into this relationship, right? right? And this relationship is is a is an abusive one. She finds a father who has never, she never knew, who's wealthy, and he gives her money so she can run away. And then she gets a trainer, and she trains. And then the last scene is she fights her husband and kills him, right? And takes back her power and everything like that. She's had enough. And- <laughs> yeah, she'd had enough, right? <laughs> and um, and the reality of, of domestic violence situations are not that we have this wealthy father we never talked to before and that we have all this time to train and or that even fighting back, you know, often ends up in both parties being arrested. And then suddenly it's just like this complicated, it's complicated now, you know, as opposed to like, this is a classic power and control situation this person fought back and now you know they're both going to jail or 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 they're they're dead or i mean oklahoma is known for like the number one killer of women in the state are our partners absolutely or the fact that any of us want to engage in that kind of violence you know that it's it's this whole conversation about how you know and you're right it is completely elitist first of all and it absolutely leans to a conversation about who is and isn't worthy of being protected, right? So like, if you can't, you know, if you can't protect yourself, or if you don't have the means, or if you're not this or that, it, you're weak, first of all, that's that's the thought process, at least. And two, that they're, they're in a world that that could actually happen. I know so many people, uh, so, so many survivors of violence And I don't know one that happened like that, you know, like that where anybody felt any kind of resolution or resolve, or it's just this, it's this, uh, it's kind of toxic really to, to introduce that. And for people who have gone through real deal violence, to be like, oh, here, this is your responsibility, you know, to take, take back all of this and make them pay. It's just not the way that it works. Um, And I think, uh, you know, circulating that message is really harmful because, I mean, there's enough guilt for people who are in those situations anyway about either not having the means to leave, having children, whether or not that they are also a part of this violence. Or the fact that, you know, Oklahoma had this this law that if you weren't protecting your kids, you're going to jail, too. And it's like there are so many reasons and things that happen that make it impossible for some people to leave these situations. And we don't talk about that enough. And then at some point there's this, you know, I think MMIW is a really good example about who is worthy and who isn't worthy of a search. So whenever we are putting together searches or we're talking to families who have missing relatives, you don't ever tell them 
you don't ever say the word runaway. Like it is a, absolutely, they will not, they will not pursue it. If that happens, if they had any kind of a, a record, you know, of, of any kind, if there was any kind of drug or alcohol abuse, like there are things you can't tell them, which is ridiculous. Right. But if you want them to help you, like these are like the things that we've had to learn kind of the code switching of filing a report, if you will, about making sure that your relative will, will be searched for, because otherwise they're like, we've literally heard police say, well, they are living a dangerous lifestyle. They're living a high risk lifestyle. So they'll probably come back or, or like somehow it's their fault. The victim blaming that happens a lot at the whim of whichever officer it is that you're talking to is pretty thick. So uh, absolutely. It's, it's one of those things where, we have to teach our families how to not get put in the corner. Well, and, and you know, to to beat a dead horse about Alaska Daily, my one of my favorite shows ever. They did a great episode comparing a search for a, a non-native woman who had fallen off a boat versus a native woman who had been missing for quite some time, and their fa- their family had got like had to organize searches and no police help at all this white woman falls off a cruise ship and like suddenly the national news is there and one of the reporters at the end is like how much money did you spend on searching for this woman that fell off the boat well over a million dollars how much have you spent looking for my cousin nothing why is one worth more than the other and and isn't that going on in canada right now with the landfill the bodies that are in the landfill that Canadian authorities are refusing to search the landfill for missing relatives. Whereas the non-native people, they'll go out and search for them in no time. Absolutely. I mean, I think it just emphasizes a lot of people like to say that we're this post-racial, you know, society. And it's like, oh my gosh, the idea that it wouldn't be this kind of a crisis if it weren't for that kind of mentality, right? Like if there was equity in law enforcement and in all local, state, federal, you know, even tribal sometimes, it's it's definitely prevalent here. I feel like it's one of those things too that the more we hit education, the more that we are represented in the community, the more that we are engaging in this work to make sure that, you know, representation and in film, especially like some of the stuff we're seeing that's actually accurate (laughs) is, is such a, um, something that you don't think about, but really, really impacts our numbers. The more people that you can, the more accuracy that's reflected in our community, those numbers are going to go down. Illuminative has this incredible data, this, uh, the research that they did that showed that, there are Americans still today who believe that we are subhuman, that we are not fully human people. And then there's another group of people in America who think we don't exist anymore. So when you have that knowledge and that data and you go, oh, okay, well, it's a lot easier to abuse somebody that you think is not fully human. Uh, Those old mentalities that that just permeate America, whether we're talking about slavery or indigenous people or now queer people, we're seeing so much legislation that is so similar to all of these other things that are being, that are really, you know, are 2S 
folks are just being in us and our kids inundated with these hateful policies that somehow portray us as not fully human. And it is so much easier to abuse people that you have that mentality about. Um, and until we're able to, you know, and I say we, it's not us, this is not our responsibility to fix. Unfortunately, we will be the ones to do it and are doing it. But it absolutely is, is something that like representation the more we can do that, the more the more accuracy and education even, it's all tied to this. Like it is so complex that, you know, that's another reason that we have to fight for equity in education and accuracy in education. And it is on the fire in Oklahoma right now. I want to talk a little bit about how, you know, like these these representations in media, you know, and even that we as Native women or Native uh, femme people that we we still deal with, and I think a lot of it has to do with that fetishization, fetishization of Native women, you know, we have all these, we have these cartoonish images, it feels like we're just fighting just to exist, you know, every day, you know, whether that's, you know, the cartoony, the cartoony representations of, of Native femme people and Native women, like, it just, it's a lot to take on. And like you said, like, it isn't our responsibility to fix this, but it certainly feels like we have, we, we have to do so much more work to undoing a lot of the, the harm and the, the dehumanization that has occurred through harmful media stereotypes. You know, like I tried to tell someone that what they were doing as far as like the tomahawk chop, you know, that, that what they're doing was called a tomahawk chop and that it was not right. And they were like, Oh, they tried to argue with me. And so that's when I was like, no, no. And so like, it's hard to have these, it's hard for us to have these conversations too, when you're trying to just convince someone. And this was someone I knew, this was someone I went to school with. And now I feel like I'm having to argue and for my own humanity, you know, and I feel like when we have the, these, these, this imagery, like, you know, of course, like tiger lily. And I don't think of tiger lily actually specifically, actually the image that always bothers me actually from Peter Pan is the older native woman where she's calling Wendy a and, uh, you know, she's speaking in broken English. Tiger lily doesn't speak at all, you know, because what, what makes a perfect woman? What makes a perfect native woman? Right. Probably the That's woman right. that doesn't speak. That's right. She's <laughs> but the pretty- woman that but the and woman, she is mute. Yeah, she has absolutely no voice. Yeah, she has. She doesn't talk. That's ma- that makes her the perfect one. But the woman who's a little bit naggy and older and doesn't fit within the beauty standards, she's quote unquote unattractive. You know, she I, that's the one that actually bothers me most. Yeah, Tiger Lily is. But then there's that image of like that one just really that one. That that one's the one that makes me angry is the one of the older native woman. Tiger Lily is really sexualized, right? Like uh-huh. yeah. she's a little girl. Yeah. I mean, she she's she's not an adult, you know, and and it she's seen as kind of this um also, you know, she's always seen with her arms crossed and she's got kind of a face. I love it. It's a stink face. Like I know that face. That is stink. And I'm mm-hmm. like, here for it. Keep it up, Tiger Lily. Sure. But it yeah. And even with the things that we're seeing now, you know, we're seeing these these films being remade or remade in a different way. I mean, it's a really great conversation, too, about the new Little Mermaid and how everybody just lost their mom. Oh, my it was God. Like, oh, my gosh. I, I cannot. Like, I was like, mermaid. Oh. And that's it's a really good representation, right? Like, it's a really good mirror in front of our face to be like, oh 
we really haven't come that far. Okay. Yeah. Like let's have the conversation one more time. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Let's go through it again. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. I have a question. Um, <laughs> do we know how much of the violence against native women is perpetrated by native versus non-native people? Does anybody know that statistic? Since we're talking yeah. about fetishization, I can't say yeah. The, the vast majority of people who are committing these crimes against Indigenous women, two-spirit, non-binary people are non-Native. Um, and for so long, as we know, or, or maybe you don't, um, before the reauthorization of VAWA, there was this huge loophole, right? Like if you could be on Native land and if you abuse a Native woman and you were non-Native, they couldn't hold you accountable in tribal courts and because the jurisdiction wasn't there a lot of federal the federal government just was not they just weren't doing it they um i don't have the numbers right in front of me but i can dig them back up it was like a very small like very small number that were actually being investigated and so it became really common knowledge especially in man camps which are usually camps that um, pop up whenever there's oil uh, being drilled or excavated or some other uh, resource that's being pulled from, you know, from our land. And these camps of people who work there who are dominantly men, whenever they came into town, the rates would skyrocket of our women who were being raped or who were being, who were being killed, uh, who would go missing. And so thankfully we had some really incredible relatives who went to that and and went and got that changed and it was like a lot of hard work it didn't just happen and it wasn't due to wind river folk and so i think that it's important that we remember that that wasn't that long ago like vala i can't even remember what what year it was first that loophole was um closed but it's only been like one reauthorization ago i think and before that you could just you could just get away with it. And people were. And so, but I will also say that usually a, a lot of that violence, if it's not happening in those areas is partner violence. Like they know they're the people who are taking them. I'll say that it is really complicated too, because sometimes when you get into situations like human trafficking, it's not happening the way we think it's happening. Like people are being groomed into this. There are people who make you feel like they're on your side. They're going to be there for you. They're going to provide your food and your clothing and your housing. And if you are living in poverty, that sounds really good. That sounds like if you've never had anybody to support you or be there, it's really easy to want to be with this person who then flips the script and and puts you in positions to have to uh, be a part of sex work of some kind, and that's that's forced. So that's not sex work. That's that's forced labor, and and it absolutely is is one of those things that we think we could never be a part of. That just imagine losing your support system and what you might have to do to survive, and it could be any of us. And it is definitely a grooming kind of situation, and it's super hard to get out of because a lot of the sisters that we meet they finally feel like they have money now. And, you know, a lot of this has been produced by this person who's grooming them to make them feel like, look at what you've got now, you know, look what you can do now. And you couldn't do that before. And so it's hard to also go into those situations and try to convince them to leave sometimes, because this might be the first time that they've had 
their own roof over their head or food in the fridge. And, you know, and you can get really used to, to feeling like this is a good life that I'm in charge of when they're not in charge of it at all. And so it's, it's really complicated in that way too. What I'm thinking about, and I know that you said that the statistics are that uh, the majority are non-natives perpetrating against natives, but there also are those situations where natives are doing it to each other, right? I have examples of it in my family. And in the news recently, there's a the pretty glaring example of a man named Nathan Chasing Horse, who mm-hmm. has been who has been indicted and is going to trial he's been charged with sex trafficking so all of this is of course of allegedly this is he's not been convicted yet but he has based on the the news reports that i've read you know he sort of runs this group that some call a cult and he has several wives and he's been accused of grooming underaged women to be his wife and um, is sexually assaulting them. These are, of course, the allegations. And and there's some religious aspects to it as well, because he is uh, purporting to be a spiritual leader and things like that. So I, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about, and it's not an overwhelming amount of instances, but like how like spiritual abuse can come into play Um, And maybe what some of the signs are that folks can look out for as well. Absolutely. It's a really good point that it does happen in our community. It is happening in our community. And it's certainly something that like, that's a really big conversation that lots of communities are having right now. How do we keep our people safe? How do we also create spaces for healing, right? Like how do we do that in a way where we're not throwing people away who really need help and not shuffle them to another community to do it again, right? So it's this this really big conversation about like, do we really believe in restorative justice practices? And uh, first of all, you know, I'm always going to say we care for those who have been victims first. Like that is our first priority is to protect our people, especially our kids, because a lot of this happens really early. Like a lot of these victims are very young, not all of them, but when you're impressionable, it's easy to, when you're looking up to people who are in film, right? Somebody like him who was in film, who are, you know, cultural leaders, who are religious leaders, that's a lot of power. And to have that kind of power means that absolutely you're going to have the ears and eyes of other people. And when they're abusing that power is just like, it's the worst feeling for me because we fight so hard as a community to protect our ways and our, our ceremony and our, our, all of the things to see it abused in that way is just Oh, it is, it, it goes all through me, but it is very common because that's a, that's a, a, something that, especially for a lot of our people is like very important, right? Like, and the, you know, even some of our ways that are abused, like how you don't correct somebody who's older than you, you are, don't speak against your, against your elders and things like that all come into play as part of that power dynamic that's being abused. And it's really hard sometimes, especially when isolation is a big part of the game, right? Like if you can pull somebody away from those trusted loved ones who are going to be able to raise those flags and go, Hey, 
this isn't okay. This is not a, a safe relationship. It's real easy to get sucked down that hole of, oh, okay, you know, this is the way he must know, you know, he's, he's respected, he's hired in film, he's, you know, all of these things that we innately sometimes tell our children to trust, you know, trust your relatives, trust your community. It's such a huge disappointment is not the word. It is just in a gross abuse of power. Do you think that sometimes uh, there might be circumstances where individuals are afraid to come forward or even they come forward and their parents tell them not to because of the way that this person is respected in the community or the idea of what we were talking about before, which is like that in society, we're still considered cartoons and um, or savages, so many stereotypes about us. And so as Native people, we want to put our absolute best front forward and we don't want to share our, our dirty laundry, right? And so right. it's sort of like, we don't talk about that. And yeah. don't bring that up. And and I can think of a circumstance that just came to light recently where it was an individual that was associated with someone very and very famous Native person. And it just seemed like there was a lot of protecting of this person going on. And I wondered Absolutely. if you could speak to that about like, how common is that? How do you fight something like that, particularly when you're being told like, you can't say anything bad about this person. They're they're yeah. in, in an honored position. Yeah. I think it's super, super common and not just in the native community, right? Like, I mean, we see it unfolding in these huge, huge cases now nationally that involve even, you know, a past president, you know, so it's, it's so prevalent. Um, this, you know, keep it a secret. Don't tell your job is on the line or your relationship is on the line or your whatever is on the line. And not just that, but the backlash that happens when you finally find the bravery within yourself to, to speak up is just monumental. It is, it is like this avalanche of people having, calling you a liar and that this is not, you know, that this isn't real and that you made it up or you did something to uh, justify what happened. And I think too, it's even compounded even more in our community because our community is so much smaller, right? Like everybody knows everybody. And I have to like stop and pause to say that our women contribute to this a lot whenever they raise young men and sunny boy them and like just make them to where they are perfect and they are beyond reproach and they're young elders and they're like all the things that they say about and and it it's harmful to the young men right like this idea that you have to be perfect or you have to like this or that like nobody's perfect nobody you know is going to I don't know we we have to be real when we're raising our children and say we have to be equitable. We have to talk about healthy relationships. We have to own our position as uh, mothers or parents to also not contribute to this in some way. Because a lot of that, once you've already, you know, proclaimed this child perfect, how are you going to then deal with this fallout that happens in a way that protects those who've been victimized? And, you know, there is this, this, you know, things have happened in our community where I've seen lots of people try to protect or say this can't be true. And it does so much harm because it makes it that much harder for the next person to say, 
Yeah, that happened to me uh, because they'll see what happens to people who speak up and we have to do a better job of like believing victims and standing beside them whenever this happens in our community and really stepping up and and calling people out whenever they're uh, actively protecting predators. And Sarah, can we go back just for a minute? Uh, can, can we talk about that term, sunny boy? I've heard that term thrown around a little bit on TikTok. And I thought I thought I heard it more prevalent in like the Southwestern native communities. And just for our listeners who may not be familiar with that term, like, could you talk a little bit about that term? Yeah. What sunny boy means to me is that mother or parents who put their child on a pedestal, their, their, their son or uh, on a pedestal that is really based on like kind of perfection, like they're they're they do no wrong and um, they couldn't possibly, you know, they, they're always doing right and setting, uh, setting this example that they're just kind of the perfect person and they, they cater to them. They take care of them. They serve them first. They're, uh, it's kind of prevalent in a lot of our communities as well. Like even, you know, firstborn, uh, kind of stuff that happens in some of their ceremonies all around firstborn sons. Um, mm. and so, ooh. uh, yeah, Ooh, we went there y'all. Yeah. Hey. Oh, um, we live there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they never have to face the consequences of their actions. Yeah, they're protected. Mm-hmm. They're protected. They're perfect. This, they certainly could not have done these things. And I think, wow, the pressure, first of all, of having to be perfect and then having to hide anything that isn't, right? Not just this, but anything that happens that isn't going to make everybody proud. Uh, it just does a disservice to that person. And then it makes them to where they're just not accountable for anything they do. I see those relationships as like enabling, right? So they're just enabling whether it's, I remember I went on a date with a guy who told me he didn't work for 12 years. And I said, how did you not work for 12 years? And he said, my mom spoils me. He, he knew it. He knew it. Yeah. You know, and um, it was, it was really eye opening to me to hear something like that because you know, it's just. Did you go on a second date with him? A. <laughs> I went on two more. I went on two more dates. I'm really open minded right here. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to be open minded. I didn't want to judge. <laughs> Were you trying to give that Sonny boy a second chance? I gave him three. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should point out that the male hosts of this podcast are busy. It's not that we disinvited them to this conversation. <laughs> and they will, I won't speak for them, but they, they're feminists. And oh, very, much so. echo, very much so. Yeah. But they are working. They really are working. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, this is not like us talking behind their backs or any kind of scenario. I bet they agree with us. I bet they agree with us. Of course they do. They do. I've heard them. So I think this is really interesting, like this, this idea of women contributing to this. But I wonder if it really goes back to this, the image of our Native, so so Native women are sexualized and everything like that. But the image of our Native men are that they're savages or drunks, or, you know, think of those stereotypes. And I wonder, I'm not a parent, so I shouldn't talk about Sunny Boys, but I just wonder, like, if it has to do with, like, wanting to raise up 
the you know these young men lift them up and it's just happening in a way that is enabling as opposed to like genuinely lifting them up and having them right. be it's held toxic. accountable it's yeah. toxic ideas of perfectionism which is so colonized right like we're not giving them room to be who they are in things they do well or things they don't do well and giving them space to like fail and be okay um it actually it really is a disservice to them uh but i i, I get it you know like we want we want everyone to win. We want our men to win. We, you know what I mean? I get that. We love, we love our children. We want them to, we want to positive talk them. We want to make sure that we're infusing that into their lives, that they know that they can uh, succeed. And a lot of aunties want that too. Like it's not just moms, like, you know, and dads do that as well. So there's enough blame to go around, but I think we have to realize that there are ways to encourage our children that are healthy, right? We've got to give them space to make mistakes. We have to teach them about healthy relationships. We, we have to teach them about body sovereignty. We have to talk about sex. We've got to talk about uh, birth control. Like we have to talk about these things because the more we don't, the, the worse this is going to get. And I think people have this, I don't know this, this idea that if we talk about sex, like it's just going to encourage people to have more sex. And, or if we talk about birth control, it's going to make people want to have sex more. And like the data is there that like the more information people have, the less they have sex. Like the, even the generation right now, millennials are really interesting. And like the Gen Xers and, or Gen Zers, like they've had more of that information than my generation and probably some of our other generations. And they're waiting longer to engage in sexual relationships. They're waiting to get married. They're buying houses and having pets. And like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's something to be said about knowledge. And whenever we impart that and we give that, that is the absolute best thing that we can do to set them up for success. So like, maybe it's not telling them that they're God's gift to all women, but maybe tell them like, go out there and make some mistakes. Like, let's talk about what happy means to you. Let's talk about what joy means to you and how we can also give back to our community. And let's, let's talk about all the things. And I think that's where we're missing a lot of the opportunity. And that's, that's prevention in our homes, right? Like that's stuff that we can do today, right now, don't have to wait. And I understand that for some people that's really hard and those conversations aren't easy and they're really uncomfortable in my life. I didn't know anything about sex. Like I, I've learned some hard lessons because that it was just too uncomfortable for my folks. And I get that because that was what they received as well, but I made it a concerted effort to go, okay, I'm starting early. They're going to know the parts of their body. So they have a language to be able to tell me if something is going wrong they're going to learn about their rights to their body. And we're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about contraception and all of the things. And they, they wish I would shut up <laughs> and that's, but you know what? I'd rather them have all the information. I feel like it's like anything else. Like when you learn to brush your teeth and go to the dentist and do all these things, like we should care much as much about their sexual health as we do about anything else that they go to the doctor for. And I think that that is also another piece to why these, these things are happening. I'm going to back way, 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 way up to the beginning. 
to talk about all of us being on set and all of these outside entities coming in and the signs that we can have to recognize when somebody is being groomed, like actual signs, not the word that's being thrown around these days. And what we as a community, the steps that we can take as aunties and uncles and grandparents and, you know, just, well, our audience knows, you know, they may not be our children, but they're they're our children. So we want to be able to effectively help them, not just talk at them. So do you have any tips on what to watch for? Because I've seen it on set where a certain producer came into town and he was shooting a big budget film and he was rich and powerful and had all these girls, pretty girls that, as his PAs. And he promised them jobs in New York and a couple of them actually moved to New York. And now they've kind of gotten caught up in some of the litigation that's been going on with it. So mm-hmm. it happens in Oklahoma and it's going to happen more if we don't keep an eye out for it. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what we see on set, how we can intervene effectively and how to provide that safety to our relatives. Absolutely. It's a really good question because it is being aunties and uncles. Like that's a, that's a thing that is really important. And one thing that I think our community does really well. So it's one of our prevention methods, right? Like I think being that and not being afraid uh, to just ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, to tell somebody, you know, I'm, this is what I'm seeing and I'm concerned. Like, do you want to talk? And just making sure that you ask those questions over and over. I'm seeing this happen. I'm seeing that you're, you know, that you're kind of more isolated lately and you're not engaging in the things you normally engage in. Do you want to talk, you know, and just over and over, just make yourself available for those conversations because the data also shows that it takes seven, eight, 10, 12 asks before somebody will really want to engage in that conversation. But when you see things like, and and I'm never on set. So let me like say that off the bat, like I'll lean on you all for that kind of that information. But one thing that kind of is unilaterals that you see in all spaces is they try to isolate. Like that is a huge tactic is trying to get them away from the people that love and care about them, the important relationships in their lives, both emotionally and physically so that people can't see what's going on. So they don't hear these conversations. They don't hear what they're saying to these victims. And that is, that's one thing that you can really look for is isolation tactics. And in that person making decisions that really don't line up with who you know them to be. And so those are just a couple, but I would love to hear from the rest of you about what that looks like, you know, on a set. I mean, it was hard being around and trying to convince them that this rich, powerful person didn't have their best interest at heart, you know? And I, I mean, I think one of the glaring cases is with Misty Upham and what happened to her with the whole production of the show that happened here in Oklahoma. You know, she was not the only one that was affected by that predator here in Oklahoma. And yeah, that's how this whole conversation came into being, because I see all these young girls who are auditioning for all of these shows that are pretty and they have these big ideas about what going to moving to Hollywood and being a star and producers that are making all these promises. And then it just really, it scares me 
as more as the industry grows here that we're going to run into more and more of these predators showing up and it's it's my source of frustration because all i can do is just be like this is a bad idea it's one of those things too that happens in a lot of industries you know the modeling industry which is a lot of times tied to acting and those things it's thick it's thick in the modeling world too about like are you going to get this job and who do you know and what are you willing to do to get these jobs and the the idea that that's even a thing that we're all pretty it's all pretty common knowledge that you know what do you or who do you have to do to get jobs is is just shows like the gross negligence in these arenas and there are a lot of people doing it right but it just takes a few people to really cause this kind of abuse to really make this ripple wave in a community and that responsibility to call it out but it's so hard right because you want that job you want to be able to be this person and live out your dreams and do all these things and you're thinking if this is you know this idea that these are the dues that we have to pay to be a part of these industries is just it's bonkers you know and and having somebody to tell you you know like no you do not have to uh, participate but there are some like yeah that's what you have to do to get those roles i mean i think we've seen it played out in the courtrooms here lately about what people have had to do to be a part of the industry. It's, it's just sad. I mean, we, we've seen a lot of things about Ezra Miller come out as well and that's still playing out, right? Like there's still, there's, you know, I don't think that the court hearings have happened or anything like that yet. So we don't, we don't know the full story, but like, I don't I think know we'll ever to... will. I mean, he pays I... off his victims. I mean, that's I a, another it. difference between the two cases between Chasing Horace and Miller is that they pay off their victims. Chasing mm-hmm. Horace, I don't know if if he had that privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Allegedly. I was looking, allegedly. Yeah, I was looking I'm at, sorry. I just, I just have to say allegedly for the lawyers. I, thank you. <laughs> Ezra Miller is not, has not been convicted of anything. There's been a lot of accusations and a lot of folks coming for, or folks coming forward and saying that they are doing things to their, you know, or that there's been problems and things like that. But so far, no one, uh, Ezra Miller hasn't been convicted of anything. No, he has not, but he has had tons of accusations of with all stories that all sound very, very similar. And there have been so many times where, you know, I was reading kind of a history and the, the settlements that happen when these allegations come up, like it's almost every single one have, have been settled in that way um, with clauses that don't allow people to tell their stories. Like, you know, when you accept this money, uh, you're no longer allowed to talk about these events, um, which is another like incredible silencing kind of situation. And so it's, it's really tough because he was in our community, right? Like, um, I have friends who were on the film and it was about violence. <laughs> like, it was about violence and women taking back their power, specifically an indigenous group of people. And it was about MMIW. And so it's it's really tough to hear about the current situation 
that's happening right now and the parents who are just beside themselves, right? Just beside themselves about wanting to have their child back, to want them to be safe, to want them to be loved and cared for in a way that they should be. You know, this child kind of standing by Ezra saying, nothing is going, nothing's wrong here, you know? Uh, so it's a, it's a tough situation. And again, you know, that is a very, very, it happens a lot. That happens a lot where it's hard to break free of some situations and some relationships. Oh, I want to apologize. Um, uh, Ezra uses they, them pronouns and I, I, I got that wrong. So apologies for that. Uh, want to make sure that everybody should have the pronouns used that makes sense for them. And um, Ezra uses they, them. My kid was growing up. They were very involved in theater and dance and just having grown up in it myself, when they would get invitations to go perform at places, especially private parties, quote unquote, mm-hmm. I always went with them. I, you know, when they were invited to travel out of town for a performance, I always went with them as a parent, just because I knew what it was. Even if it was discouraged, I insisted on going. If they were disinvited because I was going, then I knew that I had made the right decision. Red flag. Big red flag. (laughs) So if your kid is interested in being in entertainment, then you absolutely have the right to go and be with them when they're doing their performance. And if, if somebody is trying to get you to not, that's a red flag. Just disconnect. You have the right as a parent to be anywhere your minor child is like auditions and uh, any kind of like rehearsals. And it, it happens in schools a lot, guys. This happened to me in high school and it was all about, you know, trying to get that kid during school time hours in my case, because your parents are never around, right? Like, so it happens a lot in schools and you have a right to be in all of these spaces to ask questions and it's going to be uncomfortable, right? Especially for minors. Like they have a really good, it's horrible, but they feel an immense responsibility for something they must have done to cause this to happen, or they blame themselves in some ways, because that's what kids tend to do is accept responsibility for really horrible adults. And it also is another reminder that like, this is hard stuff to come out and talk about. And none of us want to do it. Like none of us want to be able to have to say these things. And I think that's another reason why we have to believe people who say these things, they have nothing to gain. It's really the, the other end of the spectrum. Like it's, it's never fun. Uh, I've had to do that, uh, in high school, things have even happened in my family where, you know, they're going to protect this person and, uh, because it's too hard to deal with anything else. And it's, uh, I get it, but there, there's nothing good to that, that comes to you when you, other than like, you know, that you're going to make sure that if this person has to answer for this, it means that maybe somebody else won't have to deal with this uh, potentially it's tough. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's, it's important to just believe somebody when they, they come to you with this information. And there is like a, you know, if somebody does come to you and trust you enough to talk about this, affirming their space, keeping that trust, 
to let them be able to tell their story when it's ready, when it's time for them to tell it is incredibly important. Get, letting them own their changing this situation is incredibly important to them being able to heal their trauma as well when they're in charge of it. Uh, because sometimes it will really backfire if they don't have that opportunity to do that. So I think that's one thing we need to remember when we are listening to somebody who is telling us that story. So let's talk about resources. We all know people that are in these situations, have been in these situations. Probably we've all been in that same situation ourselves. All of our listeners are probably really interested in how they can help, who they need to talk to, what are their options if they see something, how do they say something? There are lots of good resources out there. I'm most familiar with the ones that are in Oklahoma, but there are a lot of good ones here. And I would assume that in every state, there are lots of great places, but I will say historically, there's never enough resources for um, a problem that's as big as this is. But in Oklahoma, there's this really great place called Palomar and they have wraparound services for women and their children um, who are in uh, abusive situations where they offer everything from being able to file a VPO to filing different kinds of reports. Uh, they have rape kits there. They're able to have, uh, they have childcare where you can take your kids while you, you take care of all of this because normally without spaces like this, you have to go out to multiple places to file reports, to do that, that, and relive, relive it over and over and over again. And then they have resources to help walk you through, go to court with you. Uh, and so they're a really great resource. I would also say uh, there's a really great resource called Dragonfly Home for women, not just indigenous women, but any uh, woman who has uh, who has been a victim of sex trafficking. And they're one of the only like licensed homes where you can actually go and live there. They also have emergency housing. If that's something that, that you need, you need to leave a situation like tonight, there are resources there. The YWCA also has intake for uh, women in those situations and children, and they have a living on-site as well, uh, apartments and things like that, that you can go into for emergency as well as wraparound services. Um, the Indigenous Women's Resource Center is a national organization that does an incredible amount of work that really is specific to Indigenous women, two-spirit non-binary people who find themselves in these situations. And if you go to their website, they have a lot of great resources. Um, there's another one called, there's a hotline called Strong Heart, and it's a, it's a hotline and you can call them. And I think that they might be online too, but I think it's mainly like uh, a call, but they have systems built in as well. So that if you contact them, it won't show up on your phone. So that uh, if somebody is checking a lot of times, people who are in the, the people who are abusing the abusers are checking your phone and they're seeing who you're calling and what are you Googling and all of that stuff. And so it can be really dangerous to exit a situation. Um, and so a lot of these places have that ability to be able to mask that you're not doing that, but that is a native hotline. It's specifically for native people. Uh, and it's, it's pretty cool. It's one eight four four seven native So that's one 8483 And if you go to the website, there's a thing at the bottom, if you're looking for help and you want, so your partner walks in and you need to 
get out of it quickly, you just press the escape key and it will, it'll take you to another site. Oh, weather.com. So you can just talk about weather. I'd also say creating space for people to talk, right? Like there are all these great organizations that are doing incredible work. Also just making space to talk for somebody to come to you and and just having a pot of coffee or a cup of tea and offering space for somebody to come and talk is a really big deal. Um, again, being setting a mindset for yourself that um, I know a lot of people get frustrated when they're saying this person will not leave this abuser. Like I hear that a lot and we just have to remember and have compassion and, and understand that it is hard to leave. It is, it is not an easy thing. And, you know, kids are involved, pets are involved. A lot of times it's money. Um, and so I would then say also that like the more you can buy art from indigenous women too, the more you are going to fight MMIW because you're giving them a stream of revenue so that they can leave situations. So this is just a plug for all those indigenous women out there uh, and two-spirit and non-binary folk who are, you know, buy, buy their art, buy their, their stuff, hire them. And that decreases our rates of MMIW as well. I also want to give a quick plug for findhelp.org. That's for that's Cherokee Nations. If you reside in northeastern Oklahoma in the 14 county district of the 14 counties of Cherokee Nation, there's victim services called One Fire Victim Services. And that's at findhelp.org. And uh, you can call 866-458-5399. They are federally funded. They can also help as well if you reside within the jurisdiction. And I think a lot of our tribes have those uh, resources, thankfully, and it's growing. I've had, I've talked to some tribes who are now, you know, uh, trying to get a division within the tribe specifically for MMIW, um, knowing that all of these services need to be connected to be able to be really helpful. And so I'm seeing stuff happen at IHS as well. Um, some of uh, their language is changing and they're providing, they're asking some different questions when women come in that, that need health services, trying to identify. And ultimately, right, these are, these are band-aids. Like we have to, we have to deal with the root causes so that these things don't happen. So, you know, my biggest takeaway or thing that I'd like to leave tonight is to say, let's deal with the roots. Let's deal with teaching our kids about healthy relationships, about healthy sexual relationships, about trusting their instincts and open lines of communication so that they can talk about their bodies. They can talk about sex. They can talk about relationships in, in a way that we can hear them and guide them and not be afraid to reach out if we don't know the answers. Right. So Mm -hmm. Um, lean on, lean on your community, lean on those aunties who are able to have those conversations if you can't, um, because it really is prevention. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this, this heavy topic this evening, but a necessary topic. Uh, We want to encourage you to take care of yourselves as you listen, Uh, look out for each other, be good to one another. Let's lift each other up and let's hold on tightly to one one another. We, We, let's be Let's be loving of one another and let's listen to one another. So I just want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. And I hope you all will be very safe out there. Wado, gane gay, and wewena.